Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Profile Podcast. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That is the monthly print publication that sponsors this show, sponsors this podcast. If you would like to get a free sample copy of our latest issue featuring loads more great interviews, we've got news, features, reviews, columnists and lots more, you can have your first copy of the monthly magazine completely for free. We'll put it in the post to you if you simply go to Premier Christianity dot com forward slash free sample we'd love for you to check out the magazine in that way premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample but it's time to get into the show today and i'm pleased to say my colleague ian Britton has been sitting down with the butcher turned preacher and author simon ponsonby let's listen in to their conversation simon ponsonby international speaker author theologian butcher so, shall we start with, <laughs> did you always want to be a butcher? <laughs> well, I think, I don't know if I always wanted to be one, but when I was one, I loved being one. I became a butcher, not out of sort of direct desire, but uh, I kind of fell into it. I had a Saturday job when I was about 14 and 15, all through school, really, um, and um, summer holidays as a butcher's boy just cleaning up on a Friday night and sorting things out on a Saturday. and uh, But I dropped out of school when I was 16, joined the army, was invalided out of the army. Then I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and I could have gone back to school, done A-levels, and followed that route. But um, the butcher shop where I'd worked part-time as a Saturday lad said, why don't you come and work here uh, until you decide what you want to do? So I went to work there. And um, I quickly took to it, so uh, I qualified quite quickly. I was suddenly earning a man's wage, and um, for the next few years I was in the meat trade and completely loved it. So you remember all the lads, you remember all the people, your customers, so where was it? Yep, so this was in Nailsea. I, I uh, come from the West Country, and this is in North Somerset, a town called Nailsea. And I worked for several different butchers, moving around and trying to get an extra 10 quid a week at different places. And then I left the butcher's shop and um, ended up in wholesale. And I became um, a buyer and a supplier to about 120 butchers in the Bristol and North Somerset, uh, North Avon area, uh, working with the butchers, uh, working with the abattoirs and the importers. And yeah, it was a wonderful time. You knew where all the deals were. You also knew all the best cuts. Yeah, I absolutely did. I'm not sure I always made the best deals, but I certainly knew the best cuts. And uh, my advice for anyone listening is the cheaper cuts are the best cuts. You just know how to. You just need to know how to cook them. So it's uh, long and slow, my wife reckons. She's completely right. And uh, the more fat, the better. You know, you cook it slow to render away the fat, but the fat is the flavour. Cheaper cuts, generally from the top of the body, not the bottom of the body. Shoulders, not legs. So you were born into generations of Christians, weren't you? So what do you know about your father, grandfather, great-grandfather? 
Yeah, that's true. I, I, I'm, and I really celebrate uh, that heritage now. On my father's side, there were several generations of uh, Welsh Baptists and Welsh Baptist preachers. Uh, and on my mother's side, there were a number of generations of exclusive brethren. And um, exclusive brethren elders, exclusive brethren preachers, going all the way back into the mid-Victorian era. And my mother's side, her family finally came out in the 60s from the exclusive brethren. And my father was a strict and particular Baptist, and uh, the brethren and the Baptists got together. And uh, that, that's my heritage. I was brought up in a strict, nonconformist background. But uh, my father was a preacher. Uh, granddad was a preacher. I met someone a few years ago who said, I knew your granddad, the brethren granddad. And whenever he preached, he cried. Uh, which moved me, and I, and I often cry when I preach, and I feel it's getting something from Granddad. I remember going to his his uh, m- meetings, his assembly meetings in um, Princess Hall in Bristol. The women sat separately from the men, and I sat with the men, and they had their own meeting, and the Spirit would come on them, and they'd prophesy, and the women would have their meeting at the back. It all seemed rather odd to me, um, and then we'd all have a cup of tea at the end. It's one of my earliest memories. Complete with their hats? always the hats and in fact uh, my mum carried some of that tradition having been nurtured in it and occasionally she and certainly when grandma was there they would cover their heads either often with the, the serviette just to say grace so it wasn't just a hat on Sunday it was a covering whenever they prayed so school army invalided out uh, butcher uh, and the meat trade Somewhere along the way, Jesus became real. Yeah, that's right. Thank God. I always believed in God. And, you know, we grew up with God in our family, as it were, a very devout family. In my teenage years, I rejected the faith of my family or the practice of it. And um, after the disappointment of leaving the army, which I'd, I'd, I'd longed for but I failed at, I, I really lost the plot. And um, I, I went about as far away from God as anyone can go. But I always believed in God. When I was in trouble, I prayed to him. If I thought I'd got a girl pregnant, I prayed that he wouldn't, you know, my, my most intense prayers were that girls wouldn't get pregnant. I'm sorry if that's inappropriate to say. And I would talk to him when I was out hiking. I used to enjoy the countryside. But there was no worship, there was no service, and there certainly was no obedience. But a number of things happened to draw me to him. Uh, and I think all of that was underpinned by my dad's ongoing faithful prayer. And there were so many sort of God incidents. Uh, I remember being in a pub and turning to a girl Friday night and saying to her something like, do you want to come with me and I'll show you the way to heaven? And uh, she just turned and said, you need God. Um, and I remember walking out and going and sitting in a, in a subway and I had a cigarette and thinking, it's Friday night, People, why is God having a go at me? On another occasion, I tried to give money to a busker and he stopped me and said, no, I don't want your money, but you can't keep running from God. On another occasion, I was in a very seedy situation. And uh, God just spoke into my mind and said, you do not belong here. And uh, I left. And these sort of accumulated, these sense that God wouldn't let me go. And the most significant of those was 
I was sat on a fence, literally on a fence in Nailsea at the cricket pitch. And as I sat there having a cigarette, uh, I saw the Anglican church in front of me. And I then suddenly had an open vision of me teaching children the story of Jonah. And the voice of God said to me that this was where he wanted me to go. And I knew that he wanted me to teach. And I actually spoke out loud and said, God, I'm never going back to church. And if I did, it wouldn't be an Anglican one. (laughs) (laughs) And as we know, God has a sense of humour. Yeah, and he really does. In fact, it was not long after that. I was in a car with a mate of mine. He had a go at me, and uh, I didn't know whether to smack him in the gob or what. And I told him just to stop the car. And he stopped the car, and we were outside that Anglican church. And I heard music coming out. And, uh, you know, I hadn't darkened the doors of a church in years, but I was inexorably drawn to this music, this worship. And I went in, and I was overwhelmed, first by the fact that it was full of people, and I was used to going to churches where when my family turned up, we doubled the congregation. Secondly, they were all young. There were so many young people my age. I thought church was for old people. And thirdly, and most importantly, the sense that God was there. And, you know, I was a big, tough lad. I was a butcher. I was a hard man. But my heart just began to melt in the presence of God. And, in fact, people began singing in tongues. And uh, I'd never heard this obviously but from somewhere in my childhood education that verse though they speak in the voice of men and angels but have not love I thought this must be angels and I wasn't sure if I was tripping or what but I began to cry I didn't like the thought I was crying in public and I left but that sense of God stayed with me and the following week I was out with my mates on a Sunday they said you're coming at the pub tonight I said I'm going to church And uh, I went home. I I can still see myself getting myself ready, my best kind of leather waistcoat and (laughs) wash my long hair. And I went to church and I knew I was going to meet God and get saved. And I did. And when you did, was it immediate transformation? Yes, it actually was an immediate transformation. One of the funny things was that night that I went back to that church and knelt down and At the end of the service, there was an appeal just for prayer, but I came and gave my life to the Lord and sobbed my way into the kingdom. When I turned around, that girl who had said to me in the pub a year or two before, you need God, was sat there. And so were other people who I'd I'd known. And then I I subsequently found that they'd been praying. There was an immediate transformation, and uh, it, it really did feel like a, you know, the Bible says repentance, metanoia is a change of mind. In the New Testament Greek sense and in the Hebrew sense, it's a change of direction. And I did feel both my my mind and my direction changed. And uh, immediately things stopped, you know, just um, sexual things and even, even, you know, addictions that I had. and, And God just delivered me. And I knew all I wanted from that moment on was to, to know him more and to live for him. And there was this urge just to start sharing what you'd experienced? There was, and uh, immediately uh, I was back in the pubs. I didn't stop going where I used to go, but I went there as a different person. And uh, I enjoyed hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, and I enjoyed talking about what had happened. And some people were interested. They knew I was a bit of a rogue, and they knew something had happened. 
and changed me. And But yeah, back in the pubs, I was there witnessing and sharing my faith. Quite quickly, I signed up and became a Sunday school teacher within a few months. And the first thing I taught was the story of Jonah, of course. And I then got involved with an organization with an amazing man called Corky Davy, an organization called Open Air Campaigners. And I used to give up my Saturdays to go and preach on the streets of Broadmead with Sketchboard and just share my faith. And, uh, and church and the things of God and ministry, it began to take over, really, uh, and got to the point where um, I left full-time employment and went to live by faith as a full-time evangelist. And what are your memories of that time, just living by faith, being out, just going wherever you felt God leading you? Well, they were wonderful days, and uh, my sense of it was, you know, I, I was free to spend time with God. I was responsible for my own diary. God was providing me with enough to, to live on through the generosity and gifts of friends. And I was living, you know, humbly, very modestly, and I was doing what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell people about the Lord, um, and I was getting to preach, which I felt God had called me and anointed me for. And there was some fruit. People were responding. I, I, I just loved it. But they were wonderful days they, of, of a sense of God's presence, of God answering prayer, and of God being very near. And there have been a lot of times subsequent to that where he didn't see me answer prayer, and he wasn't very near. But back then, that seemed like a, a time of an intensity of his presence and uh, him speaking to me, yeah. You'd encountered Jesus, you'd fallen in love with Jesus. Yeah. And was it around then that the Bible started to do exactly the same thing and you started to fall in love with God's Word? Yeah, well, in fact, I think I fell in love with God's Word almost immediately. I had a role model with my father, who was a, a Bible teacher, and growing up, my memories, you know, every day of my life at home was of my dad up before I was, reading his Bible, uh, after the, in those days, nine o'clock news, going up, shaving for the night, at uh, the night before the next day, and then having his, another quiet time and reading his Bible. And so, when I became a, a Christian and committed my life to the Lord, the kind of role model I had was, you read your Bible. So, in fact, I, I was working in the meat trade in Bristol at the time, in the wholesale, and I remember the first Bible I had was a Good News Bible that I borrowed, I think, off my sister. But quickly, I went out and bought myself a large leather-bound Thompson Chain Reference NIV, and uh, I've still got it. But I devoured it, and I was reading um, voraciously. It was as if the Holy Spirit was just making me hunger, and uh, I used to get up. I, I worked some mornings. I'd, I'd have to be at work at four, but I'd get up half past two in the morning. I'd be reading my Bible for an hour and then quickly rush into work. And, and uh, yeah, just I just wanted to read. And then as an evangelist, with all that time, you know, reading and studying, um, all the ex spare money I had, I was buying Bible commentaries and trying to read them and trying to understand, just wanting to know more the God who'd rescued me. So that was a space that you were really comfortable in how on earth did you end up on a journey to ordination <laughs> yeah, are you still quite, asking yourself the same yeah, question i am i i do regularly 
lots of other people do. And when I was uh, licensed by Bishop Richard Harries uh, 20 years ago as a chaplain in Oxford, he said, I've read Simon's CV, and all I can say is interesting. <laughs> and then he went on to say, but God is the most interesting person in the world, so whoever works for him should be interesting. I, having been a street evangelist for about 18 months, was invited by uh, John Simons, the rector of a church in Nailsey, to come and plant a new church. And I went and and was part of a team, and we pioneered a new church, Holy Trinity Trendlewood, still there 25 or 30 years on there. And uh, for the next three years, I got married at that time. I was involved in leadership and uh, partnering with a team in planting a church that grew very quickly, and it was, a, a, again, a wonderful time of growth and fruit and life, and it was beautiful. And at that time, John Simons, the rector, said, I think you should be ordained. You're doing the work. You might as well get ordained. And I was reluctant because <laughs> I just couldn't see myself as a vicar, you know. And I didn't have the right qualifications. And I just, uh, you know, I felt, oh, no, maybe I should go and join the vineyard or something. And, but in the end, I, I was obedient to the, 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 the sense of leadership. And I went for a number of interviews, saw the bishops and so on, and they, in their foolishness, put me forward, and I found myself in 1991 training for the ministry at Trinity Bristol uh, to be an Anglican vicar. Couldn't believe it. So can you remember which bishops put you forward? Well, at the time there was an interregnum because I was in Bath and Wales Diocese, and the Bishop of Bath and Wales had, was George Carey, who had just been preferred to be Archbishop. So, in fact, it was the area Bishop of Taunton called Nigel McCulloch, who later went to um, Wakefield and then Manchester. And he was not from an evangelical tradition, um, sort of broad Anglican, perhaps even liberal tradition, but he was a good and godly man, and um, he supported me all the way. And uh, he encouraged me. I thank God for him when certain barriers were put in the way of my going forward. He pushed them out of the way. And, um, yeah, so I ended up there at uh, Theological College with four O-levels and being a, a skilled butcher. And I struggled initially, but the Lord helped me, and I sort of came awake. I hadn't done any sort of academic study, but I came alive to it and ended up loving it and doing um, the first degree and then doing another degree. Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. Another street preacher arrested. A nurse sacked for sharing her faith. Many are asking, is secularism on the rise? And if so, what should we do about it? Plus, we interview Christian Concerns' Andrea Williams, the worship leader, Lou Fellingham, and the woman who survived the Rwandan genocide and learn to forgive her enemies. And if you're wondering which of the many Christian festivals to attend this summer, we've got a quiz to help you decide. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. So you're down in the south of England, you're down in that kind of Bristol, Somerset area. How did you end up in Bradford doing your curacy? Yeah, quite. <laughs> well... <laughs> I uh, uh, I was offered a couple of curacies at places down in the West Country, and um, 
I went and looked at them and they just didn't seem to fit. And then my tutor, she was called Sue Rowe, she's an amazing woman, really prophetic. She said, I think you should look at this job in Bradford. I know the vicar, he's a good man, and I think this could be right for you. I thought, Brad, I didn't even know where Bradford was. And, uh, but anyway, my wife and I drove up there in the, in, in, um, in the wintertime. And uh, we met Colin and Audrey Spivey, the rector, and uh, we fell in love with them. We thought they were just beautiful, godly people who, you know, they were in their late 50s, were, serving, were, were giving themselves to serve on a really tough estate. And, but, and even though I took to them, I, I just thought, this isn't for me. But I, I'm not saying that the Lord did this, but the Lord spoke through it a remarkable freak snowfall came just as we were driving away and the traffic was stopped completely in fact they had to open up Bradford Cathedral for hundreds of people to sleep that night because no one could move in this this massive downpour of snow but what it meant was instead of escaping (laughs) I ended up having another night in Bradford and then another night with Colin Spivey and after that other night with him I just felt the Lord speak through these things and say this is the man who's going to help train you uh, and this is the place I've called you to be and so um, six months later I was I went and was ordained in that cathedral and served on a uh, on an estate out of, out of ring, a ring road estate on in Bradford. And as we now know he did a really good job of training you uh, and then you got your own church. So where was that? Well, I'm not sure either of those two <laughs> statements are right, that he did a good job and I got my own church. What happened next was after my curacy, and we were wondering what would be next, um, a job came up as chaplain uh, to the Oxford pastorate, an ancient historic evangelical chaplaincy in Oxford that uh, was attached since the 1920s to uh, um, a wonderful church called St. Aldate's, but running a student ministry in the university. And um, I just sensed the Lord tell me that this was the job for me. And I I was feeling, i got to be honest, I was feeling intimidated. Oxford, you know, just intimidated this butcher. Even though I'd earned my degrees and I was a priest and I'd done ministry experience, I, I felt intimidated. And um, I didn't apply. Anyway, um, at that time I went for another job and I sat there very uncomfortable in the interview thinking, this is not for me. And as I drove home back to Bradford thinking I'm not going to accept this job, the Lord again spoke to me and said, "Um, I don't want you to come here anyway. You're to go to Oxford and they will re-advertise tomorrow. The next day there was an advert in the press re-advertising no one had been appointed the first time round and I knew this was the the Lord had spoken and uh, so I applied the second time and uh, got the job and so in 1998 we moved down my wife I and my six-month-old son Joel and we began I was an associate minister and uh, the chaplain running a chaplaincy which was for the next uh, seven years just a complete thrill. And really, all of your life now has just been connected with that part of the world? 
Yes. Uh, so for seven years, I was associate minister, associate vicar at St. Aldate's, uh, which is sort of a large and lively charismatic church with a very distinguished list of previous incumbents, like Keith DeBerry and Canon Christopher and uh, David McInnes, Michael Green um, and Charlie Cleverly. And uh, I was an associate there, but with a focus on student mission and discipleship. We had several hundred students in the church um, on our books and uh, regular attendance of, you know, 150 each week. And I ran three meetings a week in term time, plus a mission most years and house parties. And so I did that for seven years. And then at the end of that, I had written a book, a little book on the Holy Spirit called More. And um, suddenly, uh, people began reading it. Um, I'm not sure they were buying it, but they were reading it. And um, I was getting a lot of invites. And it was just at the time of feeling we were coming to the end of being a student chaplain, but not knowing what next. And I don't want to exaggerate, but I was getting several invites every day coming in. And I thought, how are we, is this God? What are we going to do with it? And extraordinarily at that time, uh, Charlie Cleverly, the rector of St. Aldate, said to me, um, how about we make a job for you and you do what you want? And I said, well, how are we going to do that? We can't afford it. He said, well, we'll ask the church. You leave that to me. Anyway, he went, they asked the church, and the church had a gift for it and basically endowed the ministry for the next five years which enabled me to join the staff without a portfolio a minister without a portfolio and so then the job developed uh, and and I began teaching lectures in theology uh, I began doing series of sermons on Sundays taking up these invitations that were coming in trying to write books every year or two out of the taught material and that's been the model for the last 13 or 14 years now. And we really need to kind of get our head around the fact that these invites that were coming in were coming in via post. No, well, by then it was email. All oh, right, so yeah. you just got email. So I, I got email when I moved to Oxford, yeah. And uh, so, e- yeah, e- it was early days. But suddenly, you know, it was a bizarre thing. I, I mean, I'd just been, I mean, I'd been, Oxford's a special place, but I'd been stuck there. I'd hardly been out of Oxford in seven or seven years. And suddenly, will you come? Will you come to America? Will you come? I, it, it was mind-blowing to me, really. And I, uh, you know, I still haven't got got over the mystery and wonder of it all. But, um, yeah, people I didn't know inviting me to come and talk to them about the Lord because they'd read the the books that I, I was writing, yeah. So you did all these various sermon series. There was one on Jonah, I hope. I've never done a series on Jonah. Maybe I should. After all that time, it, there's got to be something there. There's got to be something. There's got to be. I actually haven't. You can't keep running away. I'm. I think that's my next book. I think you got the word of the Lord there. No, I did. Uh, I did a series on Romans. I got to preach for a whole year, 50 sermons on Romans. What a gift uh, to have a, a church that would accommodate that and, uh, and, a, and an incumbent and a colleague who would 
give up the pulpit for a year just for me. I thought it was an extraordinary thing. I loved doing that. I, I also taught Monday nights at School of Theology, and I taught for a year on the Spirit. That became a book, a, a year in term time on holiness, and that became a book, a year on the end times, That became, and, and so on, things like that. You've mentioned Romans there, you've mentioned preaching for a year. Does that kind of mean that is your favourite book, or is there another book really that ticks that box for you? Ah, that's a great question. Well, it it's not my favourite book, even though I, I love it, and even after just a year I'm only scratching the, of teaching it, I feel I'm just scratching the surface. I think my favourite books that, that I've I've hung around most in would be The Gospel of Mark, and I just love the immediacy of Christ and the kind of, the, yes, this sort of quick, stripped back. It's not, there's nothing sort of esoteric, nothing. It's just a, an immediate, present Christ preaching the gospel, casting out demons, healing the sick, telling people to follow him. And, and I love the speed and passion in the narrative of Mark. So I've probably read Mark's, I used to read it every week for a long time. Uh, as part of my reading um, and then Ephesians I've read Ephesians more than anything else and um, I've taught Ephesians more than anything else and I've probably preached well it, it, let's not go into numbers but Ephesians is a real treasure to me and uh, uh, yeah I, I, I've, I've tried to really grasp that um, I'm useless at memorizing but Ephesians is the stuff that sticks most in my mind. And when it comes to reading, are there particular authors that you like to read uh, in a theological context, but also in, in other settings? I spent years reading A.W. Tozer over and over and over again. Uh, you know, the great, I love reading church history, especially church biography of the great saints. I prefer biography to autobiography because I think the outsider asks better questions than you and uh, probes better but I, I've loved reading autobiography uh, biographies about you know Wesley and Whitfield and Spurgeon and Moody and Finney and men of God who've really made a difference um, obviously I've read a lot of theology over the years uh, especially related to whatever series I was teaching and for a long time, my discipline over many years was each year to pick one theme. So I'm going to put, if it was like on the atonement, and I'd just spend a year reading all the books I could on the atonement. And then coming up to Christmas, I'd seek God about what I should do next year. If it was the Holy Spirit, I'd spend a whole year reading every book I could find on the Spirit. And I would do that for years on different subjects. If there's one person who's accompanied me in my theological and spiritual walk, it would be the theologian Karl Barth, and uh, he's not my man at every point, and in fact I wrote my research on him and disagreed with him, even though he's a legend. But he, he time and time, you know, I come back to him and he's massive, and uh, it's just stimulating, stretching, at times infuriating, but Karl Barth for me has been the theologian who I'm not saying it's most influenced me, but has been a kind of sparring, not a partner, but a sparring mentor in my thinking. 
Before we chatted, I did have a chance just to read a few things about you. Uh, and one story I was fascinated by, uh, this whole idea of letters to churches, and we've got them in the Bible, all these different letters to churches. And there was a time when you were asked to write a letter to the church. Yes. That's right. Uh, I mean, I was uh, I was shocked and humbled and anxious about that. Um, but at the time, the amazing Louis van der Hart, and she had been um, one of my students when I was a chaplain. And, um, and in that role, she was asking a number of Christian leaders uh, and t- to write a letter to the church. And I think she ran out of leaders, so she came to the to me and she said, uh, "Would I do that?" And I felt I should, so uh, I agreed to. And and really, what she wanted was for those who had a sort of wider perspective from an itinerant ministry, so a br- rather than just the local church, a sort of a more bird's eye or macro view of the church. What did they have a word for? for the church and perspective and in that letter I really gave what was the burden of my heart that uh, that we needed to put Christ and his cross back at the center and uh, in our preaching in our worship in our prayers at the center of our mission that somewhere along the line we we in, in in lots of different areas had lost the centrality of the gospel and uh, that in these days the gospel needed to be as always but we need to hold on to it and uh, hold it out there's a quote from john wimber where he says don't mess with the gospel it was great then and it's great now <laughs> i mean what a legend john john wimber's been really influential in my life and uh, as I was a young sort of groupie of his following him around the country in the in the late 80s and early 90s, every conference I could go to and afford to go to. And, yeah, he, underst- he, he understood. He was an evangelist, and he loved to preach the gospel and to call people to follow Jesus. He was a very effective evangelist long before he was known as a, a charismatic minister and someone into healing. And... The gospel is the power of salvation. Nothing else is. Our music isn't. Our programs aren't. Our pastoral work isn't. It's the gospel that saves. And all those other things I've just mentioned are highly significant. But the gospel is the presupposition of everything. And so we need to celebrate it and we need to proclaim it. So if we're going to define the gospel, is there a particular scripture that you would go to that you say, yeah, this this is the definition of the gospel? Well, great question, and uh, you know we could spend all year thinking about what is the gospel. But for me, one of the the best definitions is to be found in one Corinthians chapter fifteen, is it verse two and three, where Paul says that, uh, and this is the gospel that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and on the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and you know like a pebble in a pond that can, that grows and can be expanded and we have to ask questions about yes but why and how and who and why then and what actually happened and and so it's a you know one can spend a lifetime and never really plumb the depths of it but that seems to be to be the sum of the gospel that it's centered on Jesus uh, that it's centered on his death and his resurrection that is foretold by the scriptures and Paul in that passage precedes it by saying and by this gospel you are saved 
if you hold on to your faith. And so our response to it is faith and its effect in our life is salvation. And what then does it mean to us all to present the gospel in a culturally relevant way? (laughs) That's a great question too. Gosh, we're getting into it now. Well, I think that the gospel doesn't change. So those core elements we can't give ground on you know the world may not understand them. the world's never understood them they were they were stupid to the greeks and a stumbling block to the jews 2000 years ago so this is foolishness and it remains a mystery but just because it's foolishness and remains a mystery we don't accommodate it and change it or or try and exchange it for something so we have to keep those fundamentals the centrality of christ the uniqueness of him his death his resurrection, our faith, and that brings salvation. However, the idiom, the the language, uh, and the mode and means in which we communicate that, we need to find way. We need to find words and ways that connect to people, and that is the that is the challenge in every generation and to every different context and culture. Um, how can I best present this historic? gospel that is the means of God's salvation in a way that can be heard, received and responded to by these people with their language and their intellectual and cultural framework. And and every minister in every context has to ask that question. There was a quote that I read, and I don't know whether it's your quote or we're going to have to attribute it to somebody else, which was, we must hold fast to the centrality of the gospel. Well, I say that, but... Probably everything I say, I have borrowed, uh, often, you know, subconsciously, unconsciously. But yeah, we must hold fast. If this is what saves, we've got to hold on to it. And if this is what saves, we've got to hold it out and offer it to others. That's our job. Remarkable. And if you look now back to when you were a butcher, you could never have imagined that God was going to take you on this journey. Gypsy Smith, a famous evangelist, Edwardian evangelist, said... I've never gotten over the wonder of it all. And I can't believe, why would God take a loser and uh, just a failure as a soldier, a failure as a son, a failure as a a man? uh, And there was I, I was a good butcher, I didn't fail at that. Why, Why would God just pluck them from obscurity sometimes I pinch myself you know I, I'm preaching in Oxford I was preaching in Oxford Cathedral the other day to 850 students at carol service and I had to pinch myself I think I remember cutting up meat and selling pork pies and here am I in Oxford preaching to all these students what an amazing thing and it just goes to underline and prove to me time and time again that the gospel is all about grace and uh, and God is just so gracious. <laughs> Who'd think of choosing a foul butcher from the West Country? Simon, thank you so much for sharing with us on Premier Radio. It has, it has my, been my joy just to enjoy time together. Oh, Ian, bless you. Thank you. I've really appreciated it. And thanks for uh, giving me this opportunity.